Hi, this is Francesca Morfini, and you're listening to Femme Studios. Here you'll find a series of conversations with female entrepreneurs, artists, and leaders who have carved their own path and are now putting a dent in and beyond our city. Mimi Lan is the founder of Superact, a group of cannabis retail stores with locations in Ottawa and now three in Toronto as well. Every Superat location is modeled after a bodega. It's meant to recreate an experience as easy and casual as picking up your morning coffee. Along with her co-founder, Drummond Monroe, Mimi created a very cool brand which also gives back. For every cannabis package that is returned to the store for recycling, Superat donates a food item to the food bank. Before starting her own cannabis company, Mimi spent quite a bit of time in the world of finance and investment banking. We talk about what that experience taught her and how she applied it to create a successful business strategy in cannabis today. If you're thinking about getting into cannabis or retail in any way, shape, or form, this episode is an absolute must. It was so much fun for me to record, and I'm sure you will enjoy it as well. I, I want to start at the beginning. So did you know that you wanted to work on Bay Street when you were in university? Yeah, I would say halfway through my university career. Um, that's when I really um, started focusing on finance and capital markets and with a dream of working on Bay Street. So when I first started in university, uh, I went to Carleton's Bachelor of International Business program. Um, at that point, I was taking business as pre-law because I still wanted to be a lawyer. Uh-huh. Um, and then as soon as I started um, uh my business school, uh, again, I only chose it because it was international business and we got to go on exchange for two semesters instead of normally universities, you only get to go to one, uh, go on exchange for one semester. So it's a very calculated decision. I purely only wanted to travel, um, okay. not much more than that. Um, but, you know, things change and my mind definitely changed uh, when I took more classes and met really cool people um, in the university. And so when I first started university, um, didn't take it too seriously, and then between like first and second year, I thought I would be in marketing. Um, you know, I used to draw and paint a lot as a kid, um, played piano a lot, and so I was very creative. And so I just thought marketing would kind of be for me. Um, I ended up getting stuck in a really bad group project, so I hated marketing right away. And at the same time, joined this really nerdy student investment club and that's when I started uh, my my passion for finance and I would say you know second and third year onwards only focus on finance so this is coming from a place where like I hate math so <laughs> I'm the worst person about that but yeah what do you like about so I think it's a bit of a misconception in terms of what finance really entails. And, and for me, finance just means understanding things, um, understanding how things work, how, how companies work, how industries work, uh, and being able to enact change um, in those worlds. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, I'm someone who gets bored pretty easily. And so being able to like analyze things as always kind of like moving around and, and the dynamics always always changing was just something that I immediately kind of got drawn into. Yeah. Okay, so, okay, first off, how did you get your first job? Because I feel like it's such a challenge. <laughs> like when I was trying to get my first job, I thought it was the most impossible task I was ever gonna, gonna be faced with. Yeah, it, I mean, it was very challenging. So, I mean, context for that was, um, venture capital was not kind of like my my immediate choice out of school. Um, I was gunning for Bay Street. I was gunning for a, an investment banking position. Um, and um, going to Carleton is not the same status as going to like Ivy or Queens or University of Toronto in the eyes of of Bay Street. And so I my resume immediately got counted out from from all these potential jobs. And so despite kind of networking really hard and, and trying to apply for literally like hundreds of jobs, um, never got a call back. And so I started networking within kind of the Ottawa area and I had spent some summers working at places like Expert Development Canada and Invest Ottawa. And so I'd built up a pretty good network in Ottawa. 
And so one of the professors that I was doing research with, um, like, you know, knew a guy who knew a guy who ended up being the managing director and partner at this venture capital firm. Um, you know, we got connected and I became kind of the first junior at that firm. And it was really neat because it was four partners, two based in Ottawa, two based in California. Um, and all the partners had had experience in Silicon Valley, and they were brought on by groups like Invest Ottawa to essentially support the entrepreneurial ecosystem in Ottawa. And so this was kind of like the first foray in, you know, in, in that market. And so being able to join a company at that stage was really, really neat. So I got to see everything from, you know, raising capital from investors to um, looking at the business models of the potential portfolio companies to working with the portfolio companies. So it gave me a really good perspective of what you know, small startup companies were like and kind of the messes and challenges and successes that they face, which I think has been helpful um, you know, even in my current journey. Yeah. And then I spent about six months there um you know all there at the same time still maintaining my relationships and connections with you know potential opportunities on bay street and so by mid 2015 i um you know i got a call to get an interview um at a few banks on on bay street Uh, i think there was a bit of turnover at that time and so um got a few interviews there and got through uh, the process at, at a few banks, but ended to ended up choosing um, a bank called Macquarie, um, which is a Sydney-based uh, investment bank um, and financial institution. And the focus was really uh, on the mining sector, doing mergers and acquisitions. And the reason why I chose Macquarie over um, a, a bigger Canadian bank like BMO, which was another bank I almost joined, was because of the team size. Um, when you go to a large-scale bank like your, your BMOs, RBC, CIBC, TD, and you go through their investment banking program, it's fairly standard. The experience you get is fairly standard, at least from, uh, from my conversations with the people who went through it. Very great prospects, great learning opportunities, great network. Um, And so I I knew what I could expect there. What I couldn't expect at Macquarie was, uh, you know, because it was a much smaller team, I just felt that I could have had a bigger impact regardless of what I did and I I could get more exposure. And I'm someone who is like, if I get into something, throw me in the deep end, I'll take everything on. And so I decided to take a gamble. I had no idea what to expect from the banking program at Macquarie, but I, I wanted to give it a shot. Um, plus, after my years of my year of travel and exchange and university, I saw it as Macquarie has a huge global presence. Mm-hmm. I thought I was gonna stay in investment banking for life. I was going to move from office to office and get to travel around the world while being in banking. So it all kind of worked out. <laughs> so what were you planning on moving to Australia? Um, I mean, Australia or Johannesburg or London or New York. Uh, I mean, they they literally have offices everywhere. Um, And so, I mean, during my two years almost there, um, I got to take advantage of the small team. And so I got like I was an analyst, but, you know, towards the end of my first year, I was doing associate type work because of how small the team was. I got to uh, maintain direct relationships with clients. Um, I had a lot of say in terms of how that team was built and how um, that team moved forward, which was really, really neat. And I got to go to places like New York and Johannesburg and uh, really took advantage of the global presence there. That's really fascinating. I want to hear more about how that translated to what you do today. But before that, let's talk about your relationship with cannabis, because it's obviously, like, I would say it's pretty key. Yeah. When did that start? I would say casually um, throughout university. You know, you know someone who knows someone. It's quite easy to get access to. Um, I would say for so many years, I had no idea what my relationship was. It was just, like, something that you did. Um, and I don't even think I necessarily enjoyed the experience then at that point. Um, you know, I just remember like being really harsh, it didn't taste good, but you kind of just did it. And so my experience and relationship with cannabis was pretty on and off. 
And then, um, you know, after I moved to Toronto and started investment banking, that's when it started again. More so because um, investment banking is very stressful and, and very um, work intensive. And so I, I had a lot of trouble sleeping. So um, during my Bay Street days, I would go days on end without being able to fall asleep. And that was obviously not great for my health. Or for your performance at work. Or for my performance. <laughs> um, but I was like kind of in denial. I'm like, I'm very good at being like, no, I'm okay. I'm fine. I guess that's the thing about burning out. You don't actually realize you're burnt out until it's like way past yeah. And like, it's, it's too late. Yeah. Um, and so luckily, um, I, I live with my fiance and you know, he, he's very good at taking care of me more so than, than me taking care of myself. And so, you know, he was raising the flag being like, Hey, like something has to change. Um, I did not want to go down the route of, you know, prescription medicine or, or any of that. And so, um, you know, he suggested cannabis. He was like, why don't you try this? And so I, you know, I, I was a little skeptical at first, but then I was thinking like, I might as well try. It's natural, um, you know, it's plant-based. I, I, I believe in the power of plants and I figured, you know, sure, I'll give it a shot. And then what I realized was that uh, once T- I, I consume THC, it puts just a bit of a damper on my brain and my body shuts down and then I could fall asleep. And I was like, this is amazing. This is a miracle. Um, and I, I would say it has had such a tremendous impact on my well-being. And so since then, I've, I've reintroduced cannabis in other parts of my life, um, you know, more, more social aspects. But over the last few years, I would say cannabis has been a pretty big part. All right. So actually, a lot of people get into it in order to help them sleep. But there's obviously so many different kinds, mm-hmm. and they all have different effects, and no one really knows what they're doing. And I'm assuming you were doing this pre-legalization, right? For sure. So how did you really know what you were smoking, and how did you know that it was the right stuff for what you needed? So what people really need to know is that cannabis is so personal. It's based on your your genetic makeup, what your body needs, what you've done during the day, what your mental state is, what you've eaten, all all those different factors. And so there's kind of no one size fits all. And you really have to um, experiment and you also have to listen to your body and listen to yourself to figure out what works for you. Um, I would say um, I'm I'm pretty lucky when it comes to what I needed because I didn't need much like for me I don't need to worry about you know the different terpene profiles or even the level of THC I just knew I needed a bit of THC and so I my body reacts quite well with basically any product there's been a handful that like I basically avoid now but other than that um you know it's been pretty easy just trying something and being like yep this works and I've tried it through flour, oil, mm-hmm. um, all the different formats. Um, and so pretty quickly I became a medical patient under the medical program. Um, so I've been a medical patient for a few years and now I obviously get to explore a lot more on the recreational side as well. All right. So, so you're working in finance, you're working, well, you're working in banking mm-hmm. and which to me, it's all the same thing because my brain doesn't work that way. <laughs> but yeah, so you're working in banking and um, and you're also trying to sleep while you're smoking on the side. At which point did you start to see cannabis as like a full-time job or like a career path? Yeah, I would say towards end of 2016 is when the industry really piqued my interest. And at that time, um, the sector in general was gaining a lot of momentum with, you know, Trudeau really pushing it as an agenda on a, on a national level. Um, I honestly looked at the industry from a business perspective. Um, I just thought it was a really neat opportunity. Um, I just said to myself, hey, at what point in your life are you, are you going to be part of an industry this, with this amount of global potential in your lifetime? And so I figured, you know, why not dip my toes in? Um, And I think that coincided perfectly with me just wanting a career change in general. At that point, or by that point, I knew that I didn't want to stay in a bank for the rest of my life. Um, I didn't want to do investment banking for the rest of my life. So I was already kind of 
looking for new opportunities and new career paths and it was just the perfect timing and so between the end of 2016 and you know the first half of 2017 I started just poking around to see what was out there um what really helped was also my fiance um had joined the cannabis industry at that point and so he was trying to teach me you know what was going on and you know at that time if you wanted to be a cannabis company or you wanted to join the industry um, most of the companies were focused on cultivation they're focused on cultivating for for medical purposes and i thought that was neat but it didn't really speak to me um and I guess you're like you're a finance girl you're not about growing right? yeah and and so i like i thought about i mean there are parallels to, to industries like like mining and oil and gas and i'm like i don't want to be the the upstream people. I want to be like the value add people. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I mean, none of the, the cultivators really kind of drew my interest until uh, I met a company called Tokyo Smoke, where their value proposition was completely different. Nothing to do with cultivation, nothing plant touching. It was really about how do you build a brand? How do you build uh, a connection with potential customers for cannabis uh, before cannabis was even legal? Like, how do you create that bond and be able to educate them um, through adjacent industries, through, you know, at that time, it was through coffee and clothing um, to build that resonance um, leading up to recreational legalization. And so I met some, I met Alan Gertner and some of the early team members there. Um, You know, funnily enough, during the, um, during their 420 party of 2017 was the first time I met them. And it was instant love. Miss Things. Yes, Miss Things. Yeah. I was there too, actually. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Anyway, you were saying. No, I, I'm sure we bought each other. Yeah, they had like the noodle boxes. Yes. And it was the greatest. Yes. Yes. And the, and the, cho- the wheat chocolate. Yeah. Yeah, I remember. Oh, those were the good days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I went to that party. I, I met them. I was like, this is really cool. I And like at that point, I, I really didn't understand what they were doing. I was like, I don't really get it, but you seem kind of interesting and I want to learn more. And so I basically, you know, tried to get them to create a job and a position for me, really positioning it as, you know, this is going to be a real industry. This company is going to be a big, real company. So you need someone with kind of like the business background to help you grow. Um, And so it was a fairly easy conversation and they kind of saw what I could bring to the table. I was ready to, to leave my banking job and it was again, perfect timing. Um, so June of 2017, I jumped from banking into cannabis fully. Okay. I love that you've created this position for yourself and that's not something a lot of people get to do. And it's a conversation a lot of people will find completely impossible to even fathom. So can you tell me a bit more about how you went about that? Like, how do you start that conversation, <laughs> like, practically speaking? Yeah, I, so I knew people who weren't part of the company, but also kind of knew the team members there. And so they definitely helped with the communication and messaging. But I think it was really positioning it as, you know, you are doing something great, but I think there's a gap here. And so how can I fill this gap and make what you're doing greater? And so um, what I think I was able to, to bring was something that was different and wasn't, it was a skill set and experience that wasn't currently part of the team skill set. Um, and but they weren't looking for. They weren't currently looking for. They had just hired a, a president at that point, which was also, you know, had a very good business background. And so I essentially got to be like the quarterback for everything else. And um, I think the timing, again, was impeccable. Um, so I, I, feel, I feel really lucky um, that I had those conversations at the right time. But I also think it was um, seeing an opportunity and really being uh, resilient and not taking no for an answer. So I had multiple meetings, went back and said, hey, I really think this is something that you, would, I won't, you, you should be considering. Um, and, you know, a few weeks later, there I was. It was a sign deal. <laughs> yeah. I find in a lot of these conversations, the question of imposter syndrome or the topic of imposter syndrome comes up a lot. Mm. And you sound really confident and really uh, decisive, like you said, in that interaction. Were you? 
were you kind of like convincing yourself that you could do it? It was it was a lot of convincing myself and also um I would say a little bit of desperation. Um I did want to leave. I, to leave. <laughs> I in, in my heart of hearts I knew I wanted to leave. It was the right time for me. Um and I just I just thought it was so cool. Like I'm not from Toronto and Tokyo Smoke had a really cool team and I was like this is my chance to meet really cool people in the city doing really neat things in this like new exciting industry. Like I really wanted it. Um and so I somehow mustered the confidence to kind of keep pushing at it. Um I mean to your point about imposter syndrome I feel like I have it more now than I did then. <laughs> okay, we'll talk about that. Oh, we can talk yeah, about yeah. that. <laughs> I guess you had nothing to lose. No, not at all. Um, I, I mean, compensation wasn't a, a wasn't a big part of it. Like I just knew I wanted to join the story, and that was way more important to me um, than basically any other factor in there. And because the way I looked at it was like. Even if I joined and it didn't work out, I would have learned um, some a skill set that I didn't currently have in my toolbox. I would have met incredible people that I currently didn't know. Like that in itself was such a benefit to to me myself personally and career wise. Yeah, and like you said, there were learnings from that in itself. Exactly. So for those that don't know, what was your title when you joined Tokyo Smoke? When I joined, it was. Business Development and Strategy Associate, and then it changed into Director of Corporate Development about eight months later. So if you were to explain what that entails. <laughs> it was a catch-all. Uh, I mean, <laughs> let me remind you, I convinced them that they needed the business expertise, and so um, it was kind of an overarching title, which allowed me to really get my hands on everything. Um, and so the great thing with that was I really got to work with kind of every single team and every single person that was there. Um, anything from you know meeting new potential partners and building new relationships to working on the nitty gritty you know systems and operations to analyzing the regulatory framework. Like I. Literally, whatever I could get my hands on, I jumped at it. I didn't care how busy I was. I was already kind of used to the discipline of like working really hard. So I just really wanted to take advantage to really learn as much as I could. And so, you know, that title, um, you know, even to me, like right now, title doesn't really mean anything. I think as long as, I feel like as long as someone's responsibilities grow in tandem with the growth of the company, that's way more important than than a title or like designations and not to, not to yeah, yeah. Um, say anything bad, negative about that, but like for me personally, it wasn't something that um, I particularly cared about. Yeah, no, and especially at like a company in its initial stages, mm-hmm. everyone does everything, I feel. Yeah, everyone has to punch above their way and that's how you grow together. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So how did your experience in banking and in finance then become useful at Tokyo Smoke and then today at Super Ad. So useful. Like, I wouldn't take that experience away, um, you know, a hundred times over. I, when I was in banking, I learned so many critical skills, um, quantitative, so like how to analyze something, how to see through, you know, transaction-wise, corporate strategy, like how a company evolves over time and the steps that they had to make along the way and understanding what works and what doesn't work kind of internally and externally. I really learned that skill set in banking Um, and things like how to do analysis and how to present them in a a succinct manner. Um, Like if someone asks you to do a project, like how do you come back with an answer that's um, digestible, easy to follow, but also gets to the point. Um, I I just felt I build those small pieces of skills that really rounded out me as as a professional, and I was able to do that and carry that across all the different projects I got to work on at, at Tokyo Smoke um, in in spades. Really, I, I got to use those skills every single day. Market analysis. Um, budgeting, modeling, um, understanding how a transaction 
or strategic investment or a partnership or some sort of relationship, how that would impact the company. I got to, to get a hand in, in all of that because of my skills from investment banking. And even to this day, uh, you know, in Superette, those are some foundational skills that I use every single day. So getting into Superette, you're closing a chapter for Tokyo Smoke around the time it goes public, right? Um, no. So Tokyo Smoke went public um, in January of 2018. And so uh, what happened then was Tokyo Smoke merged with a BC-based licensed producer called Doja Cannabis. And then after that merger became Haiku Brands, which became the publicly traded parent company of both Tokyo Smoke and Doja. Mm-hmm. And then for you know about nine months of twenty first nine months of twenty eighteen, um, it be it was just publicly traded entity functioning like any other public company. And you know towards April of twenty eighteen, um, Haiku almost merged with WeedMD. Um, that was in a transaction that was announced and something that I, I worked on tremendously <laughs> over a few months. Um, very busy time. Um, and then what happened after that was Canopy Growth came in and saw the value that Haiku Brands and, and ultimately Tokyo Smoke brought to the table and to the cannabis industry and um, came over and, and swooped um, Haiku Brands and kind of left WeedMD. Um, you know, as a standalone company after that. And so Canopy bought Haiku, um, which again was another transaction I, mm-hmm. I worked on quite a bit. And uh, I kind of saw that as an opportunity. Um, I felt that I was faced with kind of two paths. Um, I could stay with Canopy. And at that time I was presented with um, a pretty attractive kind of position there, which would have entailed um, international mergers and acquisitions for Canopy as a huge company. And like I think back to like the two years ago me, that would have been a dream job. I was like, this is market leader on a global scale, being able to do transactional work, really driving the the inorganic growth of that company. Like that's so cool. Yeah. You would have um, never even believed that it was gonna be a thing. No, not at all. That was like a dream job. But then I was also looking at like, you know, this industry was filled with so many entrepreneurs and doing cool things. And again, I kind of looked at it, you know, back to when I was leaving banking and looking um, at the cannabis industry and when it was beginning, I was like, this is my one chance to take a risk. Um, the, the industry is only going to keep growing up. And so this time is as good as any. So um, I believe in myself enough that if I wanted to get a job in a big company, I can get a job. And so why don't I take a bet on myself and do something on my own? And then came Superette. And then came Superette. Yeah. So <laughs> so let's take you back to September of 2018, which isn't that long ago. No, but it's if, not. <laughs> it's, it's not. It feels like a long time. Um, so over the summer, um, myself and my co-founder at Superette, Drummond Monroe, uh, who was also at Tokyo Smoke, we had been brainstorming about, you know, what would it look like if we did something together? Um, and so just for, for context about our relationship. So uh, Drummond and I actually started about a week apart at Tokyo Smoke. He started a week before me. Um, he came from a more traditional retail background. And the only reason why we even became friends in the first place was because um, at that time, Tokyo Smoke, we kept moving offices and the offices that we were in that when I when we first started, the room that we were in were just whoever started would be in that room, basically. So we got we became an inadvertent like desk buddies. Mm-hmm. We got along quite well. And then a few months after we started at Tokyo Smoke, we started working together in, uh, in navigating the, the regulatory landscape and really figuring out the strategy and growing the Tokyo Smoke retail banner in a cannabis retail sense. What was he doing in Tokyo Smoke? He was doing all retail, like retail strategy, retail execution, real estate, all that stuff. And so we ended up working together on things like the Manitoba RFP for master licenses to figuring out like BC and Alberta, New, Newfoundland strategies. And so we had worked together quite a bit 
um, during our time there, and then just became closer friends. Like as time went by, we just became closer and closer personal friends. And then, um, you know, he's also very driven, very passionate. And so, from a work ethics perspective, um, that worked really well with me and very compatible. And so, like over the summer of 2018. Um, you know, we were kind of brainstorming and then Canopy finished his acquisition of Iku. We were both kind of presented with, you know, potential opportunities in that company. And we both had the same mindset, which was, why don't we do something ourselves? And so we both left um, almost around the same time and really kicked off Superette. And when we started it, the way we looked at it was we knew we wanted to play in cannabis in general. And then you look at the cannabis value chain. We're like, where do we want to be in? It's not cultivation. It's not going to be like processing and extraction. Like those are just not areas that we're, we're familiar with and we'll never claim to be experts of. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden people were talking about like brands and product, which I think is like such a huge opportunity. But given current regulations and restrictions, were also something that we thought not, not what we really wanted to do yet. And so retail um, was kind of like the, the easy answer for us. And also given our experience together and his kind of more traditional training, it just made sense. And also we thought there was a huge gap um, in the cannabis retail landscape. I think there are so many great concepts and, and so many more concepts to come. Uh, but at that time, you know, cannabis is a high value product. You know, it is quite expensive. And so especially now that it's legal. <laughs> exactly. You know, there's there's so many layers and, and so many people you know taking their piece. But yes, ultimately it's expensive. And so um, a lot of companies were focused on, you know, a premium approach. Um, tech forward, how do we make it feel luxurious, um, you know, education forward. Um, and there are also concepts who were, you know, call it more legacy style and what we thought were each of them um, would exclude a large segment of the customers so something that was a little bit more luxurious feeling might alienate some of the legacy users some of the more legacy concepts might alienate new consumers and we just thought there was a huge gap where you know there could be a concept that was purely focused on accessibility inclusiveness and wanting to make it fun and what we really wanted to do was bring the personality back to cannabis retail um, and make it very comfortable because, you know, something we discussed earlier is that cannabis is such a personal product. And so how do you make a cannabis retail experience also very personal, which I think is also very difficult agnostic to cannabis in general, but something that we thought we were up for the challenge. Yeah, I feel like um, it's a really big trend amongst a lot of brands now to try and build a community. Mm -hmm. And a big part of that is being being personal to to every different consumer, but how can you be personal to everyone? That's the challenge. It's a challenge, especially when there's still a huge stigma associated with cannabis. Uh, We knew that there would be people who did not even feel comfortable stepping inside the door, let alone talking to someone, or didn't want to be seen like walking around. So how did how could we create a space that allowed for different customer journeys, but also respected and empowered every person that walked through the door um, to make them feel good about being there and feel good with you know products they may or may not have came out the door with. And so that was kind of like our initial thinking. And so in terms of like even visual identity and the name, that all translated down. Like we didn't want to like say something and do something different. Our brand DNA is authentic to us and what we're trying to bring to the market. And so say, for example, Superette as a name. Um, It's literally just another word for bodega or corner store. And we wanted to mimic an experience that was, you know, not unlike going to your local corner store and grabbing a cup of coffee or a muffin. Something that felt like very like no fuss and like it didn't have to be a big deal. That's the type of feeling we want to bring back to cannabis is just like this is actually a, a product that people might use on the daily and something that is so integrated into their daily lives. So it's not actually a big deal just picking something up 
Like it doesn't have to be this big ordeal and very challenging aspect. And so, um, you know, that flowed through to things like the logo, which is very, very simple, but very fun playing on, on flowers. Um, if you look at the logo closely, you'll actually see the cannabis leaf in the stem and the leaf, mm-hmm. uh, which people don't necessarily see at first glance. We thought that was that was important to us because um, I think companies have been a little bit better at, at um, being more creative with their names and, and their imagery. But you know, a few years ago, everyone was using the words like canna and green and bud and leaf and we wanted to avoid that completely and wanted to build something that was great on its own, whether or not it was in cannabis. Well, I guess adding these um, these words like canna, green, et cetera, et cetera, kind of adds the stigma when you're trying to remove the stigma because it keeps it within this like this specific understanding of what weed can be. Mm-hmm. And we think cannabis can be so much more than that. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't, like I think it's very easy for people to think this is my world and this is cannabis, which is completely separate from my world. When in reality, it's this is my world and cannabis is part of my world. And so, uh, you know, example would be if a mother was walking with, you know, with someone who might not consume cannabis down the street and see a store and pass by a store that had some of that more, um, you know, canna green bud imagery, um, might just be put off by that. Where if someone walked by through our store, even if you didn't know it was cannabis, you'd just be like, oh, okay, it's just another store. And it, it makes it a little easier for whoever that person might be. Um, and then if you kind of take the experience inside the store, um, we're, we're so hyper-focused on the details. We care so much about um, it's all the little things that we think bring the subconscious cues and really help with the, the customer journey. So anything from, you know, the red and green baskets, which, you know, there are pictures of them in the store. But I think it's, it's actually a great uh, approach for not just cannabis retail, but retail in general. I'm like, if I go to a store, I'm like, don't talk to me. Yeah. <laughs> but how can I say don't talk to me without actually saying it? And so little things like that actually goes a long way. Having a, a large menu that has all the information that you need to make a decision is also very um, you know important to us. And we specifically went um, lo-fi um, in our customer experience because we wanted to create the space for conversation for the personal interaction. And what do you mean by lo-fi, by the way? Lo-fi means uh, we don't have screens in oh, store. Oh, okay, okay, got Like, um, a lot of the, the cannabis uh, retail stores right now have, you know, digital screens with, like, rotating menus. We don't have that at all. We have Lightbox menu that we, we flip around with different products and we want to feature them. Um, but we have stuck to a paper menu that we update. It's a lot more work for us, mm. but um, it, it's worked really, really well because it has all the information that you need um, and also highlights key things like if something is organic or is new in stock or has biodegradable packaging, like little things like that to help kind of um, add to the, the information of the product. And then also that allows people to actually engage in conversation. So we think about the experience as we want you to talk to a bud tender to um, learn more about something rather than scrolling through an iPad. Not saying that one experience is better than the other. That's just the approach we decided to take. Yeah, yeah. No, I can see that. Okay, so what was your biggest challenge when you started a cannabis company? Yeah, regulation, I would say, is a huge part of that. Um, but I'm not going to really say that's a challenge per se because that's that's something that's out of our control and it's a reality that's faced with everyone in this industry. Um, I think the challenge really is how to how do you build a company when everything else keeps changing around you. Um, so regulations is actually quite a constant, um, which is which is nice. Uh, it's like everyone has this restrictive sandbox they have to play in, and everyone has to play in that sandbox. Um, and and what's great about that is we've been able to stand out relative to to other people. Uh, I think the more difficult part are 
you know, the industry that keeps on moving at such a quick pace. So how do you make business decisions that not just relevant, you know, over the next month, but would still be relevant in the next six or 12 months while not knowing where the entire market and what the entire industry uh, would look like at that time. Mm -hmm. So it's like trying to play chess, but thinking five steps ahead. Um, so that, that has been a huge challenge. And so a lot of that has to do with how do you maintain flexibility? How do you make sure that you have optionality in the decisions that you make and that you're able to move qu quickly and be flexible? That has been a huge learning experience, uh, but I think something that we've done quite well as well. So we've talked a lot about Superat, and I want to go back to you. Um, I want to hear, you know, through all the successes you found in Superat, what was the one thing that you did that had you not done it, you wouldn't be where you are today? I would say starting a company with someone else is something that um, I'm endlessly grateful for. Um, there are a lot of entrepreneurs out there who are doing it themselves and feel like they hold all of the burden. But to have a co-founder who is just as passionate as you, who cares just as much as you, that it doesn't matter what happens. It could be hell on earth that they will be there with you, pushing alongside with you is just so important, you know, for the sake of, you know, making decisions and like for my own personal sanity. Um, that's something that um, I think has been a huge part of the success of Superette and that, you know, if I had to do this alone, I probably would have given up. I And like that moral support and having someone to hold that energy it has been critical. So if you were to say like three things to look for in a co-founder, mm. what would they be? I'm putting you on the spot. Oh, that's a good question. Um, someone with drive and resilience and someone who's not afraid to tell you that you're wrong. Um, that's, that's so key. Like you just don't want, you don't want someone who's just going to be like, yep, cool. Everything's great. Um, you want to have some sort of contention and make sure that you're thinking things from all different angles to make sure you're really making the right decisions. Um, that's really key. Um, the reason why drum and my like our relationship has been so great is because we were friends before so we knew and respected each other and understood how we worked and uh, what we liked and what uh, we didn't like how we interacted and our communication is really good um, so we argue all the time but then we'll talk about it and we'll get to a place where we're both happy with and that's something that is very key. And you also work together, so you yeah. know how each other works, right? Exactly. Exactly. Great. What advice do you wish you could give yourself when you started? Super apt. I would say, I mean, this sounds like a weird answer probably, um, but I would say have more confidence. Um, I think I've, I speak with confidence now, or it seems like I speak with confidence now because I've, I've had to learn that skill quite quickly over the last few months, um, being in a lot of spotlight, but I constantly doubt myself and the amount of um, kind of emotional pain in the beginning days of Superette and just being in denial and just not being sure and that was very challenging. And I think that was actually something that I've had throughout my entire life it's only been the last few months that I've gotten out of that shell. Um, and that really has to do with the team and the support they've given me and um, the encouragement that they've given me that I've built this confidence now. So it comes from your team, but I'm sure there's things that you do as well that have helped you build it. You know, we hear just believe in yourself, like be confident. We hear it all the time. I feel like I was reading 17 magazine when I was 14 and it was like, just be yourself. And you know, we all get to points where it's like, yeah, it's like clicking in. So what are the things that you do in those moments of like deep, deep darkness? Like mm -hmm. maybe like when you wake up at 3 a.m. and all of a sudden the issue that didn't seem like a big deal at 4 p.m. is like the end of the world. Yeah, I think it's, it's learning from failure 
and learning from the situations where you have been uncertain. Um, it's it's about how you bounce back, right? And so I think I've I've been able to develop the the mindset of everything's going to be okay. Like it doesn't matter how bad it's going to get, like we will figure it out. That type of mentality really helps guide me through those darker times, um, knowing that I will find a way. You know, I have a great team. We have great partners, um, and at the end of the day, I have my health and I have my loved ones and, you know, we're all here kind of once and so we might as well give it the, like, the best shot that we have. And so that has helped and just knowing that, you know, I've dealt with bad situations before and have gone through that, that has helped build on my confidence. Um, I also think that having an, an, a healthy lifestyle has just helped my mental um, uh, state so I am fairly physically active um, I would say so every day I still go to the gym whether it be biking or boxing or yoga or, or like circuit training all of that helps me clear my head and forces me to get out of my head for that you know 45 minutes to an hour and so I can even if I woke up at 3 a.m. and I couldn't go back to sleep because I was dreading that 4 p.m. problem you know, I could go to the gym, clear my head, focus on like punching a punching bag and then come back refreshed and say, okay, I got through that class, which was literally physically killing me. And now I can deal with this. Um, and how do we do that? I like that. It's like getting space, creating a different challenge for yourself to distract yourself. Definitely. And then going back. All right. What do you hate about the cannabis industry that you want to change? Or wish you could change? Or will change. Will change. Will change. Um, The environmental impact, for sure. Um, That has been a huge, you know, button for me. Um, And I think has impacted so many people in this industry as well. Single-use plastic, over-packaging, it, it's very frustrating to, especially being in retail and seeing all the small boxes and containers and bags go out. It's It sucks. Um, and so I think there's a lot of ways we can move away from that, whether it be, you know, research and development of biodegradable um, solutions or regulations potentially changing to, to be a little bit more loose on, on, on something like that. Um, but in the meantime, like we're trying, we're going to do the best we can. And so, uh, you know, there are people out there who can um, properly clean and like melt down those plastics. So, for example, TerraCycle, they they do waste management and recycling, and so they have a program specifically for cannabis packages. And so we have partnered with them and made a commitment in tandem with them and the Ottawa Food Bank on a really great initiative that really hopefully creates conversation on, on things like the waste of packaging as well as making a meaningful impact in the local community. So I don't I don't know if you've seen this, but over the last month we we launched an initiative that will last until the end of next year at least, uh, which is we will uh, match each uh, cannabis package that is returned back to the store for recycling with a unit of food cans that's donated to the Ottawa Food Bank with a minimum commitment of 5,000 units a month. Um, and so the impact of that is um, we have the potential to to really touch and improve um, you know, every single client in the Ottawa Food Bank. Um, and so really making a meaningful impact on, on that organization and on people's lives. And at the same time, creating conversation about you know, make sure that you do bring back your cannabis package for recycling because not many people knew that, you know, prior to it. And so we've been able to to generate some noise and hopefully, um, you know, create the path for other players to do either something similar or something even better. Like this is, I don't want to see this as a super ed initiative. I want the entire industry to look for creative ways to, to do a little bit better. Yeah, be part of a larger movement, not exactly. just like do a PR stunt. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So to wrap it up, I always ask everyone one last question, which is, what are your favorite places in Toronto? 
Ooh, favorite places. Um, I love Bang Bang ice cream on Ossington. What's your favorite flavor? Oh, uh, I do like the avocado one. I love the avocado one. It's so smooth it's and so, so yummy. But there's so many. I, I love know. so many of them. Um, but I, I do always go back for the avocado. Um, or like milk tea between oatmeal cookies or something. So that's, that's definitely a big one. Um, do you have the winter as well? Duh. Canadian. <laughs> Ice cream all season. I'm probably going to go after this. I mean, on the topic of food, I also really love PG Clucks. Oh, Fried yes. chicken. So good. Have you been to the beer spot next to it? Uh, beer Volo? Yeah. Uh-huh. Many times. Mm-hmm. They have a great patio mm-hmm. at the back. Um, lovely. <laughs> so good. So good. Um, I, and on topic of beer, I, I really, really like Blood Brothers on Geary. So that's top notch. Um, I like High Park. So I go biking in the summer quite a bit. And, uh, you know, in the summer, you kind of go around and like train and you do the hills. But it's just such a gorgeous spot. Like I, I grew up in Ottawa. I took for granted how easy it was to go to like Gatineau and Quebec side and be in, in the parks and mountains. In Toronto, you're literally in a concrete jungle and to find that green space in that piece is really difficult, but High Park's a special spot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I can keep going. I love Toronto. <laughs> yeah, give me, give me a couple more. couple more. Uh, all right. Let's, I, I really like, um, you know, also on the topic of food, Bar Isabel. Oh, one of my favorite places here. And Baraval, along with Baraval. Yeah. Like, yes. Yeah. Let's add it. You know. Let's, let's lap. These are I, my favorites too now. <laughs> great. We can just go on a little like food tour. Um, Super at Headquarter Office is. Where is it? So it's actually right above the White Squirrel Cafe across from Trinity Bellwoods. So there's a few reasons why I love it, not purely because it's our headquarters and where I hang out. It's a great spot. We have a patio. You should come hang out with us one day. Um, but it's also across from the park, which, again, it's another kind of, like, haven mm-hmm. for me. And there are so many dogs, you know, back to, like, my love for dogs. I I swear I'm going to be one of those, like, crazy people who have, like, 10 dogs. That's going to be me. Um, but, you know, being around that area, you're constantly surrounded by so many furry creatures. And that makes love me really happy. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. Well, that's a great place to wrap it up. Thank you so much. Thank you for the chat, and thanks for coming over. (laughs)